What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get into this awesome episode with Nyram Samoas, I just have a few things that I want to share. Uh, number one, uh, I've said it before a few times, and so you may have heard this already, but I have the Gold Method app that's available. I took the way that I think about practicing, we turned it into an app with my friend Tony, and it allows you to check out uh, my thoughts in a very practical way on how to organize our practice to be able to build good habits and to be able to build success into our practice sessions. So that link will be in the description. You can use the code GOLD21 to be able to try it out for free for a month. I just want people to have the opportunity to try it. And if you like it, you can keep using it. If not, hopefully you're able to take something away that uh, brings more value to your practice. So check that out, link in description. Uh, also, uh, I want to say if you stick around to the end of the episode to get a secret message, from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. He always has some good words of wisdom or a funny anecdote. Uh, so I hope you stick around for that. And then also I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. One of my personal guilty pleasures in life is diving down endless rabbit holes on YouTube for all kinds of educational content. You can find so much information for any kind of topic you're looking for, including music education resources. Unfortunately, not every source of information is full of great information. And that's actually one of my favorite things about Houghton Horns and what originally raised my awareness of them way before they ever became a sponsor for the podcast is their YouTube channel. They have so many high-quality recordings and tutorial-type videos for players to learn from. It's clear to me that by supporting Houghton Horns, you're also supporting the creation of high-level music education content for so many students to benefit from. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Uh, I'm Ryan Beach, and as you can hear, I'm a little under the weather, and so I'm going to do everything in my power to not talk and let my amazing guest, Nairam Samoas, do all the talking. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Nairam, he uh, is assistant professor of music at Arkansas State, uh, teaches trumpet there. Um, he and I, <laughs> I've known who you are for <laughs> quite some time through you know social media and stuff like that. But we actually officially met, uh, I don't even know, is it like two months ago already now? Yeah, I think it was in May. Something like that? Yeah, Yeah, it was May. a few months ago, uh, Nairam was coming down to uh, my <laughs> neck of the woods to do a wedding, and uh, his car had hit some car trouble, and I sort of drove out middle of the night. We went to, uh, was it Applebee's? It right? was Applebee's, yes. <laughs> you actually saved us, so. Yeah, <laughs> so I went and picked him up and took him to their hotel, and uh, I got to know, I, you know, I got to talk to him and his wife. Um, they're just awesome people, and uh, it was a really nice, w a weird, unconventional <laughs> way to connect. 
but well, we were able to connect nonetheless. And so now I'm really glad to be able to interview you on the podcast for my audience uh, and me to get you to get to know you a little bit better. So uh, thank you so much for being willing to give me some of your time and chat with me this afternoon. Yeah, Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, it's awesome to be here. I've been listening to your to your podcast for a long time, so it's a dream come true. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> uh, well, cool, man. This should be fun. Um, as always, I think we should just get started with you taking us back to uh, as far back as you want to help us understand how you got uh, involved with music, got involved with the trumpet, and uh, just kind of take us through your progression through your education and your career to where you are now. Yeah, so... Everything started when uh, I was in my mom's belly. My dad used to play trumpet uh, to the belly, and he would say that I would actually like move when he played. So I think that was pretty cool. So I was born, and within four months, I moved to the U.S. because my dad was getting his doctorate uh, in trumpet performance. Actually, he was the very first trumpet player in Brazil to ever get a master's and a doctorate in trumpet. So uh, he studied under Charles Schluter, the, the former principal trumpet of Boston Symphony. Uh, he has been uh, my inspiration for all my career. So uh, it started there. And then I lived here for three, four, four months. So I was always going to trumpet recitals, concerts, and everything. Then I moved back to Brazil. Uh, my parents got divorced. My parents moved to Rio de Janeiro. So I stayed in João Pessoa. I'm actually from Recife, but I lived in João Pessoa for most of my life. It's just about two hours away. And uh, I started taking lessons. Uh, I started with my dad, of course, but then at, when he moved away, I started taking lessons. Uh, and I actually didn't really start taking trumpet seriously until I was 13. And then I joined the local uh, youth orchestra. So I did not start in band. I, I actually started in orchestra, which is kind of very different from that part of the region. And I always had a dream to kind of follow my my dad's footsteps and come to the U.S. Uh, so I started my undergraduate degree in Brazil. And after two years being there, uh, a trauma professor from the University of Memphis, David Spencer, and Judith Saxton, they both went there within like three months. And I was able to play for them. And my English was a little bit better than everyone else because I lived in, in the U.S. And my mom is actually an English teacher. So that kind of helped. Mm. Uh, so I played for both of them. They both... Uh, asked me to audition for their schools and then at the time uh, I didn't have enough money to audition for both so I picked Memphis because I just felt like the connection with David Spencer was a little bit stronger so audition uh, and he said no how about you just come and study with me I'm like well I would love to except I can't afford it and goes oh no no I'll give you a full ride. I'm like, oh, deal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I actually transferred. Uh, I think that was back in 2009. Yes, was it 2009. I am terrible with dates. It was some, right. some long, long time ago. So I transferred to the University of Memphis and uh, 
got here and it was really, really crazy because everything is different. And we we can talk a little bit about that later. Uh, all these his struggles as I have no idea what I'm doing in this country, a student. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to where I am now. Uh, lots of learning, lots of awesome people that uh, came into my life to help me. So from from there, I wanted to study with Charles Luther. But I think a year before I, I graduated, he retired. Mm, so I'm like, yeah, man, okay. what am I going to do now, right? So I decided to go study with one of his students. So the only two that I could find that would be able to actually offer me a good uh, financial deal because as a foreigner, I wasn't allowed to take any loans. So gets a little bit too expensive, right? So I auditioned to... Oregon State University, or no, Portland, Portland State University. And I auditioned at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst with Eric Berlin. And that's mm -hmm. what I ended up going. He gave me an awesome deal, you know, uh, being his TA uh, and uh, just uh, helping out him with scanning some things, playing in the graduate breast quintet and in the faculty breast quintet. So it was perfect. I want to move to the East Coast. So that's where I did my master's. That's where I met my wife as well. And then from there, I went to uh, the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I got my doctorate, and with Mr. Alan Siebert and Phil Collins. And that was awesome being in that city, you know, with so many opportunities, so many great people. I met so many players. That's where I started taking private lessons with Miss Speziali. That was amazing, you know, just that that city just breathes music and it was just orchestras everywhere so that was awesome for me then from there i was uh, very lucky to get an adjunct position at the university at texas a&m university in kingsville with my former professor kyle Millsap from that he subbed for <laughs> for david spencer while he, he was on sabbatical uh which is really funny because Spencer, after my being been there for two years, he came up to me and said, Nairam, I'm going to go on sabbatical. I'm like, okay, so you're going to be gone for six months? Like, no, I'm going to be gone for the for your last two years. I'm like, man, that stinks because I came all the way here to study with you. Where are you going? He said, well, I'm actually going to Brazil. Like, hey, what? You know? <laughs> Man, that's that's not fair. And he said, well, you can uh, come and do an exchange program with me. And I looked at him and said, Dr. Spencer, with all the respect, that would be an unexchange program. You know, <laughs> I'll be going back home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But it all worked out. I studied with Kyle Millsap and he was awesome. And then that's where I got my first teaching job. From there, uh, I moved up in the rank to instructor of music and got a job at Lamar University uh, in Beaumont, Texas, just an hour and a half from Houston, depending on how fast you can drive. Uh, <laughs> and then from there, uh, right before COVID hit, I was offered the position here, and here I am. Yeah, that's quite the journey, I suppose. Um, one of the things I do, I think we should just dive into it, is, you know, what's that culture shock like, you know, for someone? It's not just that you moved, you know, continents, but, um, you know, if I'm not wrong, you would have been about 20 years yeah, old or exactly. 19 or 20 years old. I mean, at that age, I was barely able to get to class on time. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the idea of, 
moving a continent away into a culture that is not what I would be used to. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like and, and how you sort of got used to things here being different? Yeah, well, first of all, it wasn't just moving to the U.S. It was moving to the South, right? Sure. So first, I couldn't understand anyone. I couldn't order food <laughs> at any restaurants for the first six months. <laughs> I would just point to the menu. And I thought that my English was good, you know? Like, oh, man. So I got there, and the first, very first culture shock was that uh, at the airport, so I'm leaving my flight, right? I'm following everyone. I'm just super excited to be here in the U.S. and, you know, like following my dreams. And then I see David Spencer and I'm like, oh my gosh, I miss the baggage claim because in Brazil, before you leave, you get your bags. So I started to freak out. I'm like, I don't have anything. I only have my Yamaha 2335 on my back and all my clothes are in that one suit case like what am what I'm gonna do now you know I and I start to walk back and he's like no 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 it's on the outside I'm like really that's odd so <laughs> <laughs> so we started there and uh my first year in Memphis was really just trying to figure everything out it was it was a struggle because I uh universities in Brazil are free so all the federal universities are free. So I wasn't expecting to be hit with all sorts of fees. I'm like, man, in this country, you you even pay to breathe, you know, like it's a fee, <laughs> it's a free for trans transportation, a, a fee for this. I'm like, I don't even have a car. Why do I have to pay for parking? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. all all that was a, a little bit hard. I was very glad that my family was able to support me with that, but I was a little bit proud and I didn't want to ask my family for money. So I, I got a job uh, giving out uh, programs at the concerts. And I also at one point uh, had to sell some Brazilian candy to make some extra money. But, you know, uh, that worked out. But uh, going to classes and just learning all the new musical terms, that, that was a big struggle for me you know, going to theory class and like I could understand everything but everything is the the name of everything is different you know a quarter note is not a quarter note in Brazil we we call it uh, I don't even remember what you call it now but <laughs> is it like a quaver or something like that no is it no that? That's no British, I it's think, a right? it's a seminima Oh, I never heard of that before. Exactly, right? <laughs> so I'm like, man, I'm going to do this. But uh, I got into the, the orchestra. I got into the, the top ensembles. So all of the professors were kind of confused at that. I'm like, wow, you play really well for a freshman. I'm like, well, I'm not a freshman in reality. I'm, you know, I look young, but I'm 20. Uh, yeah. So just learning how to deal with, with all that and how, how how to deal with classes and some signing up because in Brazil it's really simple you you get your classes and you go to the main advisor and you go and basically everyone in the music school you know it's just one day you go there there's a huge line you just wait in line and they register you and they say hey. Did you miss any classes? And you just say, no, we just keep going with the flow. There's nothing to uh, change. And one of the biggest things that I was really sour about is that in Brazil, uh, during your high school, you actually take all your AP classes. So you don't have to take any Jeanette. 
So I get here and I'm like, oh no, here here we go again. Oh man, yeah. You know. So yeah, that's that was interesting. Fun. I mean, I remember just I remember feeling that way totally when I was in college, just being like, none of this stuff matters. Why do I have to? You know, and yep. and it's interesting. I still kind of feel that way. I suppose um, I can understand why it's there. Um, why they why they have you take all these gen ed classes when you're there to play the trumpet? You know what I mean. Um, one of the yep. things I'm interested to to get your perspective on is when you're to me. I think I can identify this way, and maybe some people who are listening who are out of college maybe can identify this way. Is we don't really understand and appreciate what it is to be in an education system like that where your whole life is like going and playing in ensembles and practicing and getting instruction weekly and just continually growing and until you leave and then you realize you know there were some things about it that were not awesome but there are some there's some things about my education that like I would love to have again you having transferred and you know seeing that people were you know you getting you know a good scholarship deal and all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like you were able to appreciate what you had at the time that you had it? Or do you oh, still man. feel like it took you leaving and kind of being away from it? To no, see no, that you- no, no. It was like instant because in my university, we didn't have an orchestra or a band to play in. So the only performance that you get would be, you know, gigging. Or there was one state orchestra, youth orchestra, that you could audition, which I was able to get that position when I was 14 and it stayed throughout like for like five or six years. Uh, but aside from that, the university didn't really offer anything. Now they actually have an orchestra and, and a band, but at that time, you know, it, it wasn't any. Are you talking like about that. Brazil, right? Brazil, yes. yes. Yeah, so yeah. when. When I got here, and I'm like, wow, you guys have, you know, two, three bands, you have a marching band, you have orchestra, and you have jazz band, and then and combos, and quintet, and trumpet ensemble. That was just, you know, I was so happy that I had all those opportunities. And uh, taking lessons from David Spencer was great. His his pedagogy was really good. I, I really, really appreciated the opportunity. And... Uh, was able to appreciate from the get-go, you know? Like, of course, there are some classes that I was a little bit, you know, annoyed at. Like, why why am I here? I just want to play tr- trumpet. But I really, really enjoyed just having a support system from the university. Uh, you know, you you have all the, the dining halls and uh, all the stores on campus. In Brazil, it's not like that. You know, you don't really have you have the the one restaurant uh, that is sponsored by the government that you can pay like you know, a couple of dollars to eat in, but it was terrible. And there are yeah, and there are a couple of other other places near nearby, but nothing like you, you know having Taco Bell. Like actually, for my first year, I only ate at Subway. You know, <laughs> I was like man, there's a Subway here because actually in Brazil, in my in my town, uh, I'm from the northeast coast, so we are a little bit behind. It's the poorest uh, part of the country, uh, so we're a little bit behind on things. So I I remember being home and uh, when our first McDonald's opened, like we're like two years you couldn't get in. You know, it was just packed yeah. and 
and Burger King, man, when Burger King came with free refills, oh my lord, man, <laughs> that was like the biggest thing of the century. Like people, like very, I'm not. It was Ryan. It was so bad that they actually had to put a time limit because people would just be there eating soda the entire day. You know, oh my gosh. you you had to actually show your receipt, and it was only good for an hour. You know, wow. <laughs> so coming here and discovering Amazon. You're like, like what? You you got two days shipping? What? And that's when you started buying all sorts of trumpets, mouthpieces, and uh, and uh, shit music. I'm like, wow, I can't. Because I didn't have, I think I had one Arben's book and that's it. So mm-hmm. having access to all that was just, you know, a kid at a... Uh, a candy store. A candy store. I'm like, wow, I want this, I want this, I want this, you know, that, that, that was super awesome. So that was cool. <laughs> so, like, so I guess to sort of fully round it, to take that perspective and your position now as a trumpet teacher and educator, and I, I don't know where you stand on this, but many trumpet teachers, you know, especially because it's a one-on-one dynamic. It's one of the few one-on-one dynamics that students will have. Um, when you have students that maybe are there and they don't have that same kind of perspective because they grew up with Burger King, like all of this, <laughs> you know, that's a kind of a goofy way to say it. But how do you encourage them? How do you, like what's your perspective when you're encouraging them and maybe they're struggling or maybe they don't realize like how much is available for them to grow and to that they have access to it? Do you try to convey uh, some of your perspective in that way or like oh, how yeah. do you like how do you meet them that that way? Yeah, actually, there is one instance that I remember. It was really really clear. I had this student. I'm not gonna say from which. Uh, uh, university at a taught and, and he came in and he said, Oh, Dr. Simons, you just don't understand. You know, and I said to him, Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I'm, from the, I'm from a third world country, buddy. And he just looked at me, you know, and he was puzzled and he goes, like, Oh, <laughs> you know, and then we start talking, and then I think it's a it's a nice way to to connect and to you know let them know that uh, I've been through through a lot, and I'm I'm never afraid of sharing that part of my life with them. Say, so look, if I can make it, you can make it too. You know, uh, opportunities were were tough back home, and and so are here. You know, uh, but I try to just. Show them and maybe uh, advise them on some things that they can do. And uh, I am very sympathetic to them, especially you know on the financial part of it, because I never had to pay for it, school. I mean, I am helping pay for my wife's students' loans, but you know, uh, when they say, you know, look, I have to take this semester off to, you know get my finances in order, you know. I don't say, oh, that's an absurd, like you can't do that. Well, I try talking to them, saying that it's important for them to continue in school, maybe, you know, going part-time so they don't uh, leave. And usually, you know, they they take my advice and they they figure some, some stuff out. I try to help them with finances because I think that uh, students sometimes don't prioritize what's important because they can only see right at the moment instead of think a little bit of the future. Because if they leave college, you know, the probability is that they're not going to come back and now they have yeah. this huge debt that they have to pay. So I kind of try to show them that perspective. Yeah, I had a student 
um, in the past who he he wasn't really vibing college, but he's you know stuck with it. And then basically, like right at the end, he's like, "I got to take some time off." He's like, "But I'll be back." And I was like, "Okay, you know, I, I believe you. I'll, I'll believe you." But in the back of my mind is like, you know, inertia is a strong thing, and I think when people will step away from school for whatever reason. Like if you got a reason, you got a reason. But I think inertia when you're away from school, trying to enter back into that into that environment, I think it'd be really tough for 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 people. So um I think it's yeah. it's cool that you're willing to try to be like, I understand, but like let's see if we can work something out for sure. I think Yeah. Cool. And uh I've been very Last year at the university, there are some uh, financial help that the university has been willing to do for uh, students in that position. I worked with a lot of uh, people. They are, you know, they are the first generation college students. So sometimes even their parents don't really understand what they are going through. So the university has been really good at, you know, helping and mentoring and just showing them that there is a way to do that. So Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, let's shift into uh, your life as a trumpet teacher. Um, I'm kind of curious what you sort of, um, you know, what are, what things are most important to you as a trumpet teacher when you're trying to help people grow? Um, do you mostly focus on trying to help people become, you know, uh, masters of their instrument? Do you mostly focus on musicality? You know, I'm saying, do you have certain things that are like, these are pillars of what I believe in? Or are you really just like kind of go with the flow, yeah. whatever someone's struggling with, like we just help them where they're at? Kind of what's your approach as a, as a trumpet teacher? Well, I have a more of a holistic approach. So I try to help the person. You know, I try to figure out what they want to do in life and kind of help them achieve those goals uh, in a more of a, how can I say, just individualizing. You know, I don't have per, per se one thing. I mean, I do think that sound is the most important thing on the trumpet, period. Because if you have a bad sound, no one's going to want to listen to to you, period, right? So that's my main approach with everything, but I try to really get to know the student and try to uh, help them with themselves first. You know, uh, I work with a lot of students and I would say 85% of them are struggling just being a like an adult. So I try to resolve that and then we get into the trumpet. You know, and when when I get into the trumpet, then I do. I'm I'm big. I'm very 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 big on fundamentals, and getting you know a strong foundation for all of them first, before diving into anything else. So I work on the person, and then I work on the fundamentals. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I completely I agree. At least from the way you're describing it, I think um, you know there's a lot of we would call resistance or a lot of. Um, I've heard people use um, not resistance, but um, it's just like layers, things in the way, and many of many of the times for people, it has nothing to do with the actual instrument itself, yeah. right? And so I think it is uh, wise to try to sift through and figure out what are your roadblocks to, 
you know, it, basically what we're trying to do, in my opinion, and I'll see if like kind of if you have any, any way to expand upon this, but basically we're trying to get people to a point where they can do regular work on the trumpet or their instrument and it's a fulfilling and satisfying experience yeah. rather than I have to do this because I don't want to fail or I, I'm afraid that like I'm going to have a bad performance and people are going to make fun. You know what I mean? Rather from this like place of like, this is horrible and I feel fear is driving me rather... I feel satisfied with the process that I have. Um, do you, can you expand upon that in any absolutely, way? What you think absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I am a hundred ten percent in agreement with you because first of all, we don't do this for money. You know, <laughs> that's the, the biggest thing. Because you know, some some people go to their office jobs and they're like, "Well, I hate it, but at least I'm making money." With music, if you hate it, you're not gonna make money. So, <laughs> so it needs to be something that they love doing. It needs to, to be something that is fulfilling for them. So. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that if they can see themselves doing anything else, they should go do something else because music is hard. And but it's it's I think in my opinion it's one of the most fulfilling uh, jobs one can have. Yeah, you hear that from time to time. People will say if you can do anything else, you should do anything else because music is hard. I think anything is hard, though, you know, and and it's like I kind of I kind of want to challenge that war that worldview a little bit because, you know, I've learned like podcasting is hard, you know, <laughs> learning how to guide a conversation for an hour and a half is hard. Like when you listen to Joe Rogan or somebody do it for three hours, like someone who doesn't interview people regularly won't put together like that's an amazing skill he has to talk to someone for three hours someone he may not know very well obviously he knows many of his guests I, I dove into making videos and learning about lighting and all that kind of stuff and it's demoralizing to realize how much there is to learn you know and to me it I don't I guess if I'm to challenge that worldview and then we'll, I, I'd love your feedback to see what you think. The thing I would like to challenge it with is to me, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't come down to like, if you could do something else because music is hard, it just should be, do you want to do it? Like, is that, it should me, it shouldn't be like, a, I'm not good enough or it's too hard. It should oh, yeah. be, is this something I want to spend my time doing because everything is going to be difficult. So, is this the way I want to spend my time? Do I want to spend it in the practice room trying to get better? Or do I want to spend my time working hard at something else that I'm either passionate about? Or Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's what I was trying to say. Uh, if you have a passion that is somewhere else, you know, just don't do music just because your band teacher said that you're going to be a good musician. That's basically what I was trying to say. But yeah, every single job has their... Uh, their struggles too, like you're saying. You know, I know that, uh, and that was one of the struggles in the, the middle of my doctorate. I, you know, decided to for like a week to drop everything and just go work somewhere else because I was looking at the job market and I actually got a job that the starting pay was fifty grand. You know, just right up like I did did a couple of of interviews, got the job. And then I was walking out to for, for my first day at the job without my trumpet. And I called in and said, look, I appreciate the opportunity, but I can't do this. I love music too much. 
to mm. you know be able to do this without my trumpet. It was just one of those moments that you're like, okay, now I gotta you know focus all my attention to, to music and I'm gonna make it no no matter what because I I just realized that I can't do anything else because music chose me. Yeah, yeah. I it's I feel like I have this perspective because I have I have realized through some self reflection that. I I worked really hard on the trumpet to get a, a a job with an orchestra because I felt like that was a goal I set that I wanted to reach almost more than I had a strong desire to play in an orchestra. Like I thought that was I saw that as one of the best opportunities I could have playing the trumpet, which like I'll be the first one to say that's a bit of a lie, you know, depending <laughs> on where you get. But as we've seen, nothing is a guarantee yeah. in music. There's no like, oh, well, I got a job in an orchestra, so I have a good stable salary and I have health insurance benefits and you know, you know, stuff like that. Like that's not that that's not a guarantee or a given, I think, anymore. And so it's I think it's even double now. I think it's even double that like if you want to go into this field, you got to do it because you love it, because Anything obviously can change at any given time. And I'm just learning that I think I enjoyed trying to solve the puzzle of how do I play the trumpet at a high level, a high enough level to win a job more than I loved orchestral music, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whenever an economic crisis comes up or a pandemic, the first thing that goes are the extras, right? Or the arts, because we are not, I mean, well, it's hard to say this, but we don't need arts to survive. We need food, right? So the first thing that goes, unfortunately, it's us. Yeah, and this makes sense. You're you're absolutely right. This is not in a... I mean, you'll see many musicians post things on social media arguing about how essential music is for humanity. And and you can make that argument, but as you're saying, it's not a necessity for survival the same way, you know, and and then you're basically making the argument, well, like, what is living? You know, what are you you making money for if not to have experiences like the arts? So I think it's a cyclical argument, but you're absolutely right. Like, the arts will go and life will move on, you know? And I think... To me, that's why it's important to be able to even think slightly outside of the box and ask, like, you know, what am I trying to provide? That's what I'm trying to do is like beyond like just playing in an orchestra, in what other ways can I have a life in music that can um, enrich other people? And so I think teaching is one of the best ways to do it because you're actually working with somebody yeah. rather than just playing a concert and hoping that it's that people like it because you rarely get feedback from your audience. At least that's my experience. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, <coughs> I am in teaching because I love seeing, you know, that sparkled on my students' eyes that they want to do it. And then they want, you know, they want to go to competitions and they want to play in ensembles and then go get their masters and the doctorate, you know, and they want to be just like me. I, I love seeing that part. So, yes, I worked my entire life to be a trumpet professor, but now that I'm here, you know, I see, well, it's not just the position, right? It's like what you get to do in that position. Yeah. So you're working with college age students. What do you like? Let's say from a personal perspective and a trumpet playing perspective, let's can you pick like one thing that is sort of a common like a lot of people struggle with again as a person 
And then maybe, maybe like you said earlier, the thing they struggle with is just learning to be an adult or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the trumpet, what is something that you see a lot of people struggle with? And then kind of what is your quote fix or what do you try to help people? Like, let's start with being an adult. How do you encourage people to try to uh, become more successful at being an adult? Get a planner. <laughs> that's that's the first thing, you know. Get a planner, get a cal- get a calendar. You start making lists of the stuff that you have to to do, then prioritize them. Uh, and actually, that's the same thing with trumpet. You know, if you don't plan, if you just go into the practice room just to check a box, you're not gonna get better. So I think that the biggest struggle for both it's just trying to be more organized. And those as a trumpet player and as a person, because I have so many students that you know didn't turn in assignments not because they didn't have time to do it, it's because they actually forgot to write it down, you know. And it's as simple as well. Let's get organized. Yes, it takes time to plan everything, but you know there are a couple of, of people that can help you, especially with trumpet, like someone like you know Ryan Beach and you know some app that he has <laughs> <laughs> that can that can help. It's just something that they can sit down for a couple of hours, just think about it, and then do it because that's the other thing, right? If they they can get organized and write everything down, but they don't open their notebook. That's not going to do anything. So I think it's one, being organized, and two, actually doing it. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree. Obviously, as you've said, like I don't think it's a secret that I believe in practice organization and, and being able to, you know, life organization as being one of the things that can help you feel fulfilled is like, I have this plan and I've completed the plan. Even as simple as that can lead to fulfillment. My guess is that when you encourage people to do these things, you're either going to have people who do it or people who don't do it. And I'm kind of curious. Ultimately, we can't force anybody to do anything, right? Yeah. And so how do you disassociate yourself from people who maybe don't take your advice and you still see them struggling? How do you disassociate yourself from like, at a certain point, I just have to let that person struggle so they can kind of figure it out or anything like that? How do you, how do you go about thinking about that? Well, it's uh, a great question. So first, I try to you know, do the trumpet journaling type of deal. And then if I realize that they are not really doing it just because they don't want to or it doesn't work with them, I try to figure out some stuff that could work with them. Uh, some some of them just writing stuff on sticky notes and putting it on their music. You know, So when they open their etude book, it's right there. They actually have to physically move it. Then they, can, then they will see it, what's written there. So I try to find other ways to get them organized without them knowing that they're getting organized. And if it doesn't work for them, then you know I just sit back and wait for the time that they come back and say, okay, how can I get better at this? Because I've been, I hit a wall and I can't get past that. Like, well, okay, then now let's go back and do the stuff I was telling you. You know, and it's so funny. I had I had a student uh, last year that I told him things, and then he'll come back like three or four weeks later and said, "Oh, some someone else told me this, and it worked great." And I just look at them and said, "Didn't I tell you this?" And they're like, "Oh, yes, you did." You know. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fantastic just seeing that they 
they realize things. Even, you know, every person is different and some people get it right away. Some people take, you know, weeks or months or even years. But I do, I do think that they come back to figure out what works for them. Yeah. And I was going to ask too, so for the students that do, whether it happens right away over the course of a, of a little bit of time where they struggle and then they figure it out, uh, how would you describe the feeling of someone who has been struggling with being an adult or struggling with things on their instrument and then they finally sort of get organized? How would you describe their feeling? Like how, like what is their, like how do they act and like what do they feel uh, and what's the difference that you've seen? Well, their attitude changes completely. You know, from being this person that's just down and just feeling that uh, everything is just snowballing to someone that is happy, someone that's looking forward to new opportunities, and they're, they're enjoying the process. I think if we can get the students to enjoy the process, that's where the magic happens. You know, and it, they are completely different students. I actually have one this semester that came back. He took a semester off and said, no, music's not for me. I'm going to go into psychology. And then a couple of weeks ago, he, he, he scheduled a meeting with me and said, look, I can't live without music. You know, And I had to take that time off, but now I figure out how to do things and how to get myself organized. And from the past three weeks to, to now, you know, he has sent every single email that he had to send. He's registered to all the classes that he have to do. He's, you know, reaching out for uh, lessons before his audition. So it looks like he figured out. So it's, yeah. I mean, for, for a professor, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, what you're describing is why I, was, I believe so deeply in this is the the practice organization specifically is it doesn't really have anything to do with pedagogy. Pedagogy is like a separate conversation about yeah. like what do you do when you're doing the work. But the idea that you could shift from this is sort of a drudgery, like I have to I have to practice to uh, I'm excited to see like what I'm going to learn and how much better I'll be one week or one month or three months from now, and like I'm excited about that process. Is, is, to me, it's pretty amazing and it can follow you regardless if you become a professional musician or a, a teacher or something, or you become a lawyer who plays yep. an instrument on the side. Like You can still own that process. And I think that to be so valuable. Uh, and it's, it's, I totally, I love the way you described it. It's just a complete attitude shift towards like, this is something that I can do. Yeah, it, it's funny you're saying this. I was, uh, I was at a friend's wedding uh, not that that Alabama wedding. <laughs> not, the car, <laughs> not, not the car breakdown. Not the car breakdown one. <laughs> and I met with people that I haven't seen since college, you know, and they they were like, oh my gosh, you know, you actually made it. I'm like, you know, and but I was talking to them and they were like, you know what? When I was in college, I never understood the lessons that David Spencer ta talked to us. And I actually bring those same concepts to what I do now. And this guy's like super uh, famous in his field. He like works with like multi-millionaire co corporations internationally, you know, to like be a mediator. I don't really know what, what he does, but he's very successful. And he's like, you know, everything that I was taught on the trumpet, I use daily on my job. And at that time, I didn't really realize that those were life lessons, not trumpet lessons. And it's amazing, you know. I, and if you if you see our teacher, please tell him that you know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's. 
I mean, the the simplest way I think to to say what you're saying is that really when you start to understand that practice is about solving problems and not just going through the motions, but you're literally saying, I'm struggling to do this. Let's call that a problem. Now I need to find a solution to the problem. You realize that that's like what every job ever is looking for. Someone who understands here's a problem, let's look for a solution, you know? Yeah. At least from a creativity standpoint. And and we essentially in practice can be honing that skill for hours a day every day depending on of course how much we practice, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I totally agree and I think it's it's pretty fascinating you can apply that in in a bigger scope thinking about something like a business. This is what I'm trying to do in my own business right now. Uh, and like the social media stuff that I'm doing in the YouTube channel is I'm I'm still in this sort of exploratory like problem solving stage of how do I narrow down my audience? How do I speak to that audience in a way where they understand that I'm speaking to them? That and hopefully how do they see that whatever if they have a problem that I'm trying to solve that they can uh, I can help with that right so it's the same thing it's like a problem solving place and I, if you view it the same as practicing yeah we can be honing that skill and that will be useful anywhere absolutely also thank you for for doing that you know I've actually been using the the piccolo or map thing, and it's awesome. I I love oh, yeah. that. Yeah, your your videos are awesome. You know, I uh, actually had the students that took uh, lessons with you over the past years, and you know, they they are always really happy with the results. So thanks for providing that to the trumpet community. My pleasure. Yeah, I I really appreciate the support. You know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I'm curious if you can identify with this or have had any experiences, but. When I won my job in Indianapolis, I was like, okay, I won this job. Now people are going to start calling me and I'm going to start getting master classes and people are going to be calling me for lessons. And basically, my career has taken off. And that happened basically zero, right? <laughs> like nobody called me. I was just sitting at home, like watching the house. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. And it's, it's, it was kind of surreal to realize that, like, that's not going to happen. And it took me too long to realize that, well, no one's going to ask me to do any master classes if they don't know that I want to do master classes. So I should probably start sharing that I have an interest in doing that. But then you realize, well, I don't really have anything to say in a master class. You know, I can talk about the trumpet. And so it's fascinating to see how it's all unfolded. And there has been so much effort and thought and just like, just patience, really, too, of like sort of waiting for things to develop where you realize, like, now I appreciate the opportunities so much more when I have the chance to do a class because it didn't, it wasn't just handed to me. I feel like I've had to work to understand how to share information in a way that it can actually benefit people. And so now when I have these opportunities, because I didn't have them before, now it's like I appreciate things so much more. Than I would have. I hope that makes sense. And yeah. that's like, that's happening to me right now. I'm kind of curious do you have any, ex I mean, beyond like the educational experience that we described earlier, do you have any other experiences where you thought things were going to like click and to fall into place and they didn't? And you sort of had to work and figure things out and then it kind of made you appreciate things differently? Oh, yeah. So uh, I think first, to be successful in any field, to be actual actually su successful, you need to be able to think outside the box, right? And then you have to find the niche that you're good at and then uh, that is special, 
you know, both for you and that other people can appreciate. Because if you're just doing the exact same thing that everyone is doing, you're not going to be special. You know, like I can't compete with Chris Martin. I'm not going to go out and talking about orchestral excerpts. I don't even have an orchestra job, you know. So I had to f- f- find what was uh, what was my niche. And that happened at the end of my DMA. Because I was like, oh, now that I get a, a doctor from one of the top conservatories of the country, you know, I'm going to be getting phone calls. I'm going to win a job. Reality hit, you know, I wasn't getting through not even the first round, you know, because I didn't have any experience teaching, you know, and I'm like, man, what the heck am I going to do now? You know, I thought I reached my goal, you know, I got my doctorate and I'm out here waiting for someone to call me. That's, you know, so I had to to, first of all, figure out what opportunities were out there, right? So thinking about what I could do and what I did, uh, First, I reached out to to friends and got a bunch of students. So I got my teaching chops up. And then after a couple of months, uh, an idea just came to me. Uh, The NTC results were out. And I saw that two or three, actually four ensembles, were playing one of my grandpa's piece, the Fantasia Brasileira. So I'm like... and. Every time I hear it, I love that they they play it, but the style's not there. You know, they mm-hmm. they play it very well. That's why you know sometimes they win, uh, but the style wasn't there. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go out and talk about Brazilian music. You know, and I was very lucky that I got a great great feedback from from that. I and I ended up doing a class in at North Texas. You know, at SFA, and people just invited me to do these things. I'm like, man, I think I found what I love doing because I love the music from my country. I love playing Brazilian music and I love teaching. So that's one of the things that I am doing. Actually, we just recorded an album uh, for trumpet, French horn, and piano on all Brazilian, new Brazilian pieces. So that's going to be coming out in at the beginning of the year next year so you know i think that people uh need to first figure out what it's needing like what 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 the demand is right and then find something that they're passionate about because if you can combine both it's great (laughs) yeah of course and and to me I'm I'm I maybe people don't maybe see it the same exact way, but to me that struggle is necessary because it refine it helped to refine that you know it helped you refine like oh this is a thing I can do to provide value, but it you sort of needed things to not work out for you to start searching for what that could be, and I, I would say. Uh, something very similar for me in my in my career. You know, it's like I feel like I'm sharing good ideas, but sometimes it feels like um, there's not. Let's say if there's not as much engagement as you would like. Well, it's not their fault. It's no. It's not the people's fault watching the video. You know. Yep. It's got to be something. It's the same thing if you go into an audition and you don't advance. It's not necessarily a hundred percent. It's not necessarily their fault that they didn't. I mean, maybe they were looking for something different, but there's got to be something else that you could be. Maybe you didn't have great time, or maybe your pitch was a little bit off, or maybe your style wasn't great. You know, that's your opportunity to look back and say, okay, what can I do a little bit differently? So the same thing with you saying, well, I'm not getting called, but like, why? Well, maybe it's because 
you need something that you can share that's like you're passionate about. They can see your passion and and you found it. And then it seemed like people were like, oh, we would love to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. And because of that, I was able to put that on my CV and they're like, oh, cool, you you did a class here and a class there. Okay, it means that you know people actually want to hear what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the things that uh, I I try to teach to my kids. You know, think outside the box, find what you love, and look for the demand. Yeah, one of the things I am. I'm interested in your pers- for your perspective on uh, because it's something I th- I've started to really think is a really big deal that I've never heard before is like let's say with students or for me with clients like practice organization clients or let's say with the app or or whatever right I'm starting to think that especially in the early times you're basically mentally going to have to make a deal with yourself that you're willing to possibly mess up your interaction with a potential student so that you can kind of learn what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we we it's you can prepare to the best of your ability in terms of something like teaching. You can read all the books and figure out how to fix all the problems, but until you actually get in there and try to help somebody, but you may not help somebody or they may not like the way you did it and like you have to be okay with that so you can say all right, like how can I learn and keep getting better? Do you have experiences in your career where like students oh, yeah. maybe didn't continue wanting to work with you because <laughs> you just weren't helping them but that ultimately those experiences helped you learn how to help people more? Yeah, uh, faculty evaluations, right? That's when the students are uh, I think they feel safe to actually say what they they actually feel and sometimes it's a little bit hurtful to see what they wrote but then if you read them and try to not have your ego and try to identify what they actually trying to say between the lines you know like oh okay this student just wants a little bit more attention from me so i probably have to do that and you know, or like try to figure uh i think Teaching is just figuring out, right? It's fig- figuring out how to say things, how to be clear. Uh, I have a little bit of problem with uh, sometimes I, I say something and it sounds harsh, but in Brazil, but I mean, Portuguese is not. So when I do the translation, you, you know, I, I had these students that, you know, uh, wrote one, one of my faculty reviews is that I say hurtful things. You know, and then I talked to my wife, and she's like, "Yeah, sometimes you say things like this." I'm like, "But that's not what I mean." I was like, "Well, that's what you're saying." I'm like, "Oh gosh, <laughs> yeah. okay, I have to to tweak the the way I say say things." But yeah, I think it's learning. One of the great things about teaching is that you're also a student, right? You're you're a student, and how uh, learning how to teach better. And then I think you know Keith Johnson was great at that. You know, yeah. uh, just you know, figuring things out and then just coming up with a good approach to things. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I had uh, students that at th- this one job I had uh, when I said that I was leaving, they actually recorded the video for me and you know, send me this video saying, you know, uh, I'm I'm very sad to see you leaving. Uh, and I am sorry that we weren't pre- prepared to 
to do the things that you wanted us to do at that time. And I think that now we are finally realizing what you wanted to do and how great it will be. And uh, I'm sad to see that we can't have the continuity. So yeah, that has happened. And I, I'm sure that happened to every single teacher that actually wants to make a difference. You know, Because if everyone agrees with you, you're doing something wrong. Well, how do you balance that? And I don't disagree, but how do you balance that? How do you come into a place and have a potential vision for what you think would be great, but then trying to match it up with what already exists? And, you know, like, how do you stay sane in that process if, like, if they're not, not necessarily if they're not going along with it, but if they just value something that is not in the same lines as what you seem to value? Because obviously everyone's got, there's different paths to what people think education is. So I'm curious, yeah. like, how do you what is what is that like for you when you're not quite fitting in vision wise? Well, first of all, it's very tough, right? There's a lot of struggle on that part because you come in with all these ideas, right? And then you want to do them and then you realize, well, maybe I'm asking too much or maybe I'm asking too little, right? And it's just you have to be able to adapt, learn from your mistakes and restart. You know, and I think that the biggest thing for for me was just communication. You know, it was really sitting down, having a cup of coffee, and just having a good, honest conversation. And that could could be with your students, with your colleagues, with your boss. You know, and trying to understand the culture, because I've been, I taught, I lived in a bunch of places, and it seems like every single place I go is a different culture. Right, I've been Memphis, Cincinnati, near Boston, Texas. I lived in Montreal, lived in New York, Brazil, and I think it's whenever you move so much, you kind of start to learn to figure out what the culture is. Right? Is this culture? Is this place here more towards marching band? You know, like are these kids like really excited about DCI? You know, is this is this what is this their jam? You know, and then trying to figure out what they love doing and then start to go from there. You know, but it's tough. It's tough. Whenever your students are not getting along with your ideas, it's it's tough. But Keith Johnson on, on his book, you know, has something that's really good about that. He says that if you're starting with someone, you need to, even if you don't agree with what they're saying, you need to try it. You need to be invested in what they are saying to you. Because if you're not, then you're probably not going to be successful. If I, I see that, uh, I, I tell my students that they need to be a sponge. right? Whatever people tell them, absorb everything. Because if it's not good for them at the moment, they can use for their students in the future. So that's, yeah. that's my kind of view of this. Yeah, I remember when I was getting ready for the Indianapolis, the final round in Indianapolis. Um, I got uh, at Nor. I was at Northwestern at the time, so I, I asked a bunch of brass players if they would get together at a specific time and we could play through, you know, Mahler Five, right? But uh-huh. we'd have a brass section to play with rather than just me alone. Oh, that's nice. Um, cool side story. Chris Martin was coaching uh, a trumpet ensemble that we were doing, and I, it, this was like on a Sunday, and. I was doing this thing on a Thursday, this brass ensemble thing. And I was like, hey, Chris, are you free Thursday at 10? 
And he's like, yeah, I don't think I have work. And so Chris came and played second to me <laughs> on this thing. It's pretty crazy. I remember it pretty well. Um, at any rate, I remember playing that. And then I was talking to one of the faculty. Um, it was the band director, Dr. Thompson. And I was saying, like, I basically want everybody's feedback, everybody's input. I, I want this and I want that. And she's like, well, you, she's like, you don't want too much, you know, because like it can be hard to sift through it. And I, you know, I agree with her actually, but at the time I was basically saying I want all of it, and then I'll start to sift through and strip away, you know, what does or what doesn't work. But you're right; I think that's a good mindset to have in general of just like take it in and then sort of mull over it. You know, we need. I think, I think in this case, what you're describing. Sorry to ramble for a second, but mm-hmm. what we need is discernment more than we need the right and the wrong answer. We need the ability to say, well, how does this fit in with what I value or how I play the trumpet or whatever, so that we don't get into absolutes of this is the right way or this is the wrong way, but rather this is a way and I have the ability to discern if it will become a way that I incorporate. And I think that's a very valuable skill for in life in general, but we're talking about trumpet right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm you... You're absolutely right. That's like, like how, how I feel too. You know, I had the opportunity to take so many lessons from so many people. You know, and there are some things that really didn't work and I don't use. But you know, actually there were some things like for for example, lead pipe buzzing. I was never taught to lead, to to buzz on my lead pipe. Never. Then I get to Cincinnati and then <coughs> there are a bunch of um Israel Adams his students there, you know, and they he started taking a couple of lessons from them and say, hey, how, how do you do this? And at one point in my life, that helped me a lot. You know, so I know what what that technique does. So now when I see a student struggling with something, I can apply that. Even though I don't do it anymore, now I kind of know what are the benefits of that. So I, I think just like trying food, right? You kill I live in so many different places i'm always trying you know like gator and you know it's just like that and then you just try it at least at least you have the experience you you if you you know 20 years from now i get to eat gator again i know exactly what's coming my way you know (laughs) side note speaking of food i've been to cincinnati i think two or three times and Mm -hmm. i i one of the first times I went, I went to Skyline and I was like, I'll have this chili. And then they put a plate of spaghetti in front of me and I was like, what is this? We have a pound this is of not cheese. chili. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, this is spaghetti with cheese on it. Like, why am I eating? I wanted chili. I wanted like a soup. <laughs> this is hilarious. Wanted, yeah. Oh, <laughs> anyway, you know, it's funny. I'll, uh, because I was the TA at CCM, I was able to sit in and all the auditions. We could tell the people that went to Skyline before, you know? <laughs> They'll be right, like, uh, can, I, can, can I postpone this for, for like 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, a little sluggish, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so I guess to sort of put a bow on this conversation in terms of what we were just talking about before I kind of derailed this, you know, I think everything that we learn, mouthpieces, instruments, uh, exercises, they're all tools to fix problems, right? If we kind of relate yeah. it back to that. And I think that's partially why it's valuable to, to, to try many different things is because we start to see it as like 
I would do this exercise to fix this problem. I would use this mouthpiece to fix this problem. And it becomes less dogmatic and more everything is valuable for you. Now, the problem with that is, and this is the question I'm going to have for you, is, is diagnosing what problem you have so that you can apply the solutions. I think to some degree, we live in like the music world is full of solutions, but people don't always know how to, or musicians don't always know how to diagnose what the problem is effectively. So they don't know which solution to apply. So sometimes they're applying solutions that aren't necessarily supposed to fix the problem that they have. How do you help people? diagnose their issues? That's awesome question. So I, I teach on uh, eliminating one variable every time they do something and it, it doesn't sound good. So it's like a troubleshooting. Right, just like when mm-hmm. they when when my car broke down, right? Was it a battery? No. Was it a radiator? No. So what I do with my students, you know, if they are playing something, let's say that is very articulated, right? So they uh, they uh, they're like, oh, my tongue is the problem. It's like, well, let's check, play this passage without tonguing, and then it still doesn't sound good. Like, well, then it wasn't your tonguing, right? What, what what could it be? So I go, you know, down the list all the way till like they're singing. You know, so I go through every single thing. So your air, you know, is a mouthpiece placement, is that that you're not uh, thinking musically or is that you can't hear your pitches. You know, so I kind of go like making everything as simple as possible so they can identify what the problem is. This can be a little bit scandalous because some people will start to say that this is like thinking too analytically. Like that's obviously, I believe that's what practice is for, but some people I think could think that if you start thinking about this way and you're, it can be like all of a sudden we're thinking about the wrong things and you know, pr- like we can start overthinking essentially about like all the different things that are wrong. And I like the approach of just removing one variable at a time so it keeps it simple, but how do you put it back together? After you've figured out what the problem is, let's say it's somebody's airstream isn't consistent, right? They're sort of dying at the end of every note mm-hmm. and so they don't have any support. Once you fix that, like, does it usually just fix the whole thing immediately or do you sort of build it back up the same way you tore it down? I actually build back up. I go, okay, and then let's add this back. Okay, is it working? Cool, let's keep going, going back and back. Yeah, I mean, it is... I most of my students are music education majors, right? So I teach them, I give them tools that they can use with their band, you know, and then they can be able to identify problems and then fix them. Because if they can't pinpoint what's wrong with their own playing, it's going to be so much harder to do that with the entire band. Totally. So that's kind of my uh, approach to fixing problems. And yeah, I also, I a- sorry, I also have a, I call your your tool bag, you know, that back there, it's a list of bunch of things you can, can do. So I try to organize to give them with some uh, tools, say, hey, you know, maybe if, you know, you need this for this, and you can use this and this and this and that, you know, you can use flutter tonguing to make sure that your air is, you know, you are going, uh, playing through their lines and uh, things like that. Yeah. I like this approach too because one of the things that can happen is we can, again, we can forget that flutter tonguing, let's say, 
Flutter tonguing is very valuable for keeping the air forward and and consistent and 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 intense and focused, right? It's that's like the purpose of using it. And but it's it would be useless in like I'm trying to learn how to triple tongue, you know what I'm saying? It <laughs> yeah. like you wouldn't use it for that purpose. And so what you're saying is you're identifying the problem and then attaching a solution. You know what I mean? Instead of like always thinking problem solution, problem solution, so that it, it gives purpose to the work we're doing because it's serving to, uh, you know, the the exercises we choose or the methods or modalities that we choose become a tool that we can use, as you just described. Instead of it being like flutter tonguing is the fix for everything, or oh, yeah. you know, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna <laughs> slur everything, or I'm gonna sing every. I mean, those are incredibly useful things, but for a specific purpose and. One of the other things I see too, obviously in the practice organization side of things, is like not that anybody's really dogmatic about organization, but it's like it's almost the opposite. It's almost like it's completely personal. It's like you do this, I do that. But to me, there are still some that's what the gold method is, these pillars that like good practice would have that will help us make these decisions in terms of organization. And so I, I do think it's it's very encouraging and exciting to hear you talking and Really thinking this problem solution dynamic so that it helps keep you focused essentially during your practice. Yeah. And also, you know, it makes you better. It makes you a better player and makes you a better teacher. Yeah. All right. So we're nearing the end here. I'm kind of curious if you have just what's something, like I said, this could be personal, this could be professional related, it doesn't really matter. But what's something that you are like, this sort of concept or this idea may define me, or I think it's just super, super important. I think about this regularly. You know, some people will say like the importance of hard work, or some people would say like making sure that you're getting enough rest, or you know, I'm saying it's everybody's got a different thing. For you, what's something that sort of is always with you? You're always thinking about it. Helps keep you grounded. It helps keep you making sure that you're able to be. You know, I don't want to say the best version of yourself. Oh, that's yeah. how I could say, it, but just like helping you keep the values that you have uh, at the forefront and you know at peace and stuff. My biggest thing, and I work on this every single day, it's balancing. You know, balancing life, balancing your practicing, uh, balance. You know, having time with friends because uh, how sad would be if you just go to school and you just practice and you become the best trumpet player ever but you have no friends you know how fulfilling is that you know so i try to tell my students look yes doing your homework uh, practicing is very important but also make sure that you do things for yourself you know that could be you know playing a little bit of video games and of course learning how to prioritize things right if it's you know finals week, you sh- probably shouldn't be spending four hours playing video games, you know, you know, and and so my my biggest approach to life is just finding the balance, and it's something that I struggle with because I'm um, I love to be able to do everything I want, you know, like I want to clean the, the house, I'm gonna clean every single room, it's gonna be spotless. Well, how how about to just do a couple rooms and then I go out play you know a round of disc golf. You know, spend some time with my with my wife, and then I go back. You know, so I think it's learning how to learn how to deal with yourself and what are the things that are important for you, and balancing those out with, of course, prioritizing what needs to be done at the time in in your life. So most of the time, I would say. 
I guess the question would be, how do you know when it's not in balance? What things are become evident in your day or the way you feel? Are there are there things that kind of let you know things are not balanced right now and I need to take a hard look? Or is it like kind of how, how do you go about recognizing it? Well, I make it very simple. If I'm sounding bad, it means I need to practice more <laughs> or practice better, I should, should, should say. Uh, if, if I am looking... Uh, you know, and I'm seeing that I'm getting a couple weights. Well, maybe I should do a little bit more of exercising. Or if I feel disconnected to the world, maybe I need to do a little bit more of social things. So I, I try. What I try to do is either at the beginning of my day or at the end of my day, just to have an overlook of what is happening throughout the week. You know, for for example, we've been having a bunch of meetings, so. I, I plan ahead. I think also that's another thing is planning ahead, right? I told, told my wife, look, this is going to be a hard week because we have all these meetings that I have to do. Uh, so how about we reserve, you know, Sunday for us, you know? So it's, I think, trying to plan ahead along with balancing, it really works. And I think that your body tells you, you know, if you're stressed out, or if you can't sleep well, then you say, well, maybe I'm, I'm working too much. Maybe I need a little bit of time off, you know? I think, especially now with everything that's happening, I think making sure that you have time for yourself is one of the biggest things. Um, this might be the last question. It could lead to another one, but um, how, how do you, when you get it wrong, how do you talk to yourself? Oh man, it's, it's hard. <laughs> There's another thing that I've been working a lot. I used to be, you know, I came here by myself. You know, I have no family in, in the US. It was just me and me. So every time I got something wrong, when I would beat myself up, you know, I'd be so pissed off that I did things wrong. And then uh, with time, I realized that that's probably not the best solution. You know, it's it's a humbling experience to, to, you know, just say, okay, I'm wrong or I messed up. Let me fix this. It's yeah. it's a process, and I think it's it's a, it's a learning process too. You know, I think I've, I've changed as I get older and wiser, right? Hopefully, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I try to uh, again figure out what my priorities are and how I can get better. And that could be, you know, my personal life, my relationship with people, with my family, what needs to be balanced better. But yeah. just being humble and knowing that you're not perfect. <laughs> and giving Yeah, your- and I mean, I think it's a great, I think it's a great perspective too. And I think one thing I would love to add too, and maybe you feel similarly, but it's like, Basically, I don't think the expectation should be that we will figure it out. You know, I don't. Yeah. I, I think the expectation is that, like you said, it's a daily process, and that it shouldn't be like, well, I've been working at this forever and I still struggle with balance. Like I'm not good enough or something. I think the point is, is that it's a it's a daily thing that we do, and you know, we get it right sometimes and we get it wrong sometimes because we're human. And I think, yeah, re- releasing the expectation that we would ever get to perfection is for me like a pretty important step as well. Absolutely. And bringing that back to trumpet, you know, I tell my students, look, you got to look for the small victories. I actually have a thing. I don't know where I got this from, but it's a confidence jar, you know, 
So it's just a little, little mason jar that every time, and I have a bunch of like little rocks. So every time I do something that I'm proud of, I put it in that jar, you know? The jar is like half, halfway up there now, you know? I'm like, well, look, I've actually done things that I got better and I'm proud of. And by just having that visual, it helped me to, to stay uh, focused on what I wanted to, to do. And I think, like you said, maybe being able to distinguish be, between what you want for yourself and what other people want from, from you, I think that's, that's another one. Yeah, that's a big one. We'll probably save that for next time. <laughs> <laughs> now, Aaron, this has been great, man. I really appreciate uh, you sharing with us uh, just some of your perspective. Uh, it's definitely uh, just a great perspective. I'm really thankful to, to have heard it. And uh, like I said, to just been able to connect with you this way. If other people feel that they've connected with you, listening to you, and they kind of want to reach out and get to know you a little bit more, or they just want to say thanks for the interview, or they want to know stuff about A-State, uh, where can people find you so they can get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, or you can find me at the uh, A-State Music Faculty List. That's My email is nsimoes, S-I-M-O-E-S, at astate.edu. Uh, and please, I love talking to people. I love making connections because you never know when your car is going to break down next, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's legit. That's legit. Um, so yeah, check him out. I'll link uh, his Facebook uh, down below um, or in, in the description so you can check that out. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at thatsnotspit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, had any feelings, I'd really appreciate it if you would give this rate. I would really appreciate it if you give the episode a rating and a review on iTunes. And please uh, share this on social media. It would really help me out a lot if other people found it and, and the podcast could reach more people as well. So if you enjoyed it, please share it. Uh, Nairam, thank you so much for giving me some of your time man. it's been really really enjoyable to, to chat with you Ryan thank you so much for this opportunity and thanks for doing what you're doing it's, it's really awesome I love listening to your podcast thank you man I appreciate the encouragement uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast and most of all I would like to thank you for listening stay strong be kind to yourself never stop growing and we'll see you next time Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message comes to you with a heavy heart and a death in the studio. That's right. My computer that I've had since the beginning of Epiphany Recording Studio has died, and I speak to you today from a new one, yes, but not an old friend. And as I spend time getting everything back up and running, trying to rebuild, I just want to say that you can keep moving forward and be okay, even if you lost your background music. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.